continue our study through the book of Micah. And chapter we're going into is one that is a particularly interesting one for me. Of course, as you know, um, this summer, hopefully we'll have a documentary coming out about the Temple Mount location. And so this is, um, uh, there's a famous prophecy here in Micah chapter 3 that uh, you, you don't hear a whole lot of people talk about in the prophecy world, but this is a, was a very big deal of a prophecy. This was one that was very specific. It was one that had a big impact. It was one that was prophesied multiple times. And it's one, too, that I think we as Christian Americans in the 21st century, I think we kind of struggle getting a hold of how big of a deal this prophecy was because there are, you know, we are very different culturally than Israel was back in that day. But hopefully I can make some comparisons that uh, will help us kind of understand why this prophecy was such a big deal. And um, even though uh, we will not be able to relate to it to the extent that, th- that they did because we're just so different culturally today. But in Micah chapter 3, before we get into it, it's important that we go back and look at one verse in the last chapter to kind of remind us of something. In Micah 2.11, it says, If a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. And this was Micah showing the spirit and the attitude of the people he was prophesying to. They were a people, they didn't really want to know the truth, but they did want to, they wanted to hear good things. That was what they were looking for. And he's like, if I was that prophet, if I just came and told you what you wanted to hear... You know, I would be your prophet, but that's not what he was doing. He was going to tell them the truth, and he was about to bring them a prophecy that was not good. It was not what they were going to want to hear. And so after we go through this chapter 2, we're going to go through some other passages outside of the book of Micah where we see the reaction of the people who heard this. Now, Micah, fortunately, uh, his audience, while they did not like what he said, Um, they did end up, uh, some of that audience did end up receiving it. And we'll see a reference to that in the book of Jeremiah. But verse 1, he goes on to say, I said, here I pray you, O heads of Jacob and ye princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment? And the answer to that question is simply yes. You know, at least since these people were the heads, they should have known judgment, but they had a serious problem. Even though these people were in leadership, they were very wicked. I feel the same way when I look at our leadership today. It's like, do you people even know what justice is? You know, when you look at our Supreme Court justices, it's like, what is wrong with you people? You should know what this is, but there are people who love the evil and they hate the good, oftentimes. And that's what was going on in Israel. So verse 2, he said, who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and as flesh within the cauldron. So their problem that these leaders had, that these judges and people that were in charge, they were wicked. And the way he's speaking here, I don't know if he's getting poetic and you know exaggerating the cruelty a little bit or if this is the kind of stuff they were doing. Either way, it was pretty wicked. But you know, we could say the same thing today. If we were to like, if I was to, and I'm, what I'm saying here is not necessarily a prophecy from God, but you know, if I could stand before our uh, Supreme Court justices, 
or at least some of them, at least there's been some good things in the last couple of years. But I would just like to say to them, you know, what is wrong with you? You know, do you not know judgment? Those of you who are for just the butcher and slaughter of babies and, you know, just talk about in graphic detail the things that they allow to take place in our country to human beings. And it's, it's a vicious, disgusting thing. And it's going on. And here, he, Micah, he's talking to these rulers in Israel in some pretty strong terms. And so they were obviously very cruel to people. And leaders, here's what you got to understand too. Leaders sometimes have to make tough decisions and punish evildoers. But sometimes, and we see this in the Bible, I think this is an example of it, leaders can go overboard. You know, where they were, you know, and or maybe it's just the fact they were being cruel to people who were good. And there was probably some of both. Because one thing you'll find out in like cruel regimes is that, you know, that while they often uh, are very cruel to people, have horrible torture and execution methods and all that, you know, you do realize a lot of the people that they kill and torture are bad people. But again, you can take things, it is possible to take things too far. And did you know, even if someone's bad, we shouldn't go overboard on our punishments? It says in Deuteronomy 25.11, if there be a controversy between men and they come into judgment, that the judges may judge them and they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. So, I mean, now in America, 40 stripes sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? Because what do we do in America? We slap people in the wrist and, you know, we don't really have a problem with being too cruel to evildoers in our country. We're too nice to them. We do have a problem with being cruel to those, you know, to innocents, to babies and things like that. And there are groups that we are cruel to. But I just say all this to show that in Deuteronomy, God was telling the people when it comes to judgment and even when somebody does wrong, the punishment should fit the crime. We don't need to be excessive. If somebody steals something, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, repaying fourfold and things like that. We don't just say, man, that guy's a thief. Let's kill him. Well, you know, stealing is really bad, but, you know, that's that's a little excessive. And sometimes we can do that where we can get a little overzealous in our hatred of certain sins to where we can really be cruel to people and we don't want to be that way. That's not right. And so, um, you know, if somebody does something, even somebody does something worthy of death, you know, I mean, we can, I said we just put them to death. You know, we don't need to like prolong their life while torturing them and just doing cruel things to them. And, you know, that just, just end it. You know, the whole point of punishment is hopefully to reform but if it's something that can't be reformed, it's just to remove the evil. And so just, just get rid of them. You know, and, and, you know, to me, putting people in prison for the rest of their life is cruel and unusual punishment. And I don't, I don't agree with that either. But that's another sermon for another day. But understand, though, when God sees a nation that's being cruel to people, He does not look kindly to that kind of thing, and judgment comes. And so, verse 4 says, Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. And Israel's wickedness was going to come back on them and God wasn't going to show them mercy. And it did. The Babylonian or the 
or first the Assyrians that came through, they were very cruel people. And when all that cruelty started happening to them, all of a sudden Israel's like, well, we don't like this. You know, then they're calling on the Lord. But God's like, this is what you, the kind of stuff you've been doing to people. This is what's coming on you. And you're not getting out of it. So verse 5, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace, and he that put it not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. And one of the things that makes false prophets so bad is that they lead people astray and destroy. And that's why, you know, the Bible, it uses some of its harshest terms. If you read in uh, Peter and Jude, uh, against false prophets. Because obviously, while we all hate cruel people who destroy physical lives, how much worse is it somebody who's destroying someone's spiritual life? Somebody who's sending people to hell. And here, even these false prophets, they're more bringing, you know, physical destruction on a people and these are these are the worst of the worst and uh, that's why we just we don't like false prophets and say a lot of bad things about them because they do they lead people astray and so God's speaking here against those prophets that made the people to err and I'm not going to re-preach this I've preached sermons before but about the the sin I, I forgot what I called it exactly but the sin of error or something like that we have a responsibility to make sure we're that what we're hearing is true. It, you know, if, me as a pastor, if I get up here and I preach lies and you know false doctrine, I obviously have some accountability for that. But you are not completely innocent in that situation either, especially when you have a Bible. When you have a Bible, if I'm up here preaching false doctrine and leading you astray, for sure the Lord's getting mad at me and I'm racking up judgment for myself, but you're, you're not completely innocent yourself. Because we all are responsible to check up and make sure that what we're being taught is the truth. And so, verse 6, Therefore, night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. And what God is going to do because these false prophets were making people to err. And this is something God, I believe God is still doing today. When you look at people, whenever they like just go into some kind of damnable heresy, it never really stops with just one thing. It always turns into just more and more and more craziness. And why is that? Well, God often causes confusion to come on false prophets. And I do. I think they get to a point where he makes them go even more astray. Kind of like the person given over to a reprobate mind. In Romans 1, that person who is just giving their life to the things of the flesh, God eventually just gives them over to it. He takes the restraint away, and then they're doing things that no normal person would ever want to do. And I do believe there comes a point, even among, with false prophets, where, you know, they're, they're not reprobate yet, but once they just completely reject certain truths, God will just give them over to foolishness and false doctrine. And then before where they used to have some restraints where, you know, there were some lines that they had drawn and they weren't going to go past those things. Eventually it just all goes out the window and just teaches them the craziest stuff that you can ever imagine. And I believe that's what God did to these prophets here in Micah. 
And, and I think he does that too, just to make it clear to everybody that these people were obviously garbage. And so you do. If, if, you know, if I came along or some pastor that we know or we're friends with came along and just started preaching a little bit of heresy. I'm not talking somebody who came from a false religion. I'm talking about somebody who is one of us, who preached like us, but started just preaching a little bit of works for salvation. Okay? Just a little bit. And, you know, and, you, know you, can, you can do it a little bit where you can almost you can convince some people that you are somewhat into the fundamentals still and things like that. But you know what? I promise you, when that would happen, you know, we'd throw a fit. We'd call that kind of thing out. And you know what? If they did not, if they do not repent of that, it will only be a matter of time and they will be preaching who knows what kind of crazy foolishness. And, and I do. I believe there'll be a time where people may be tempted to make a choice, but eventually it'll kind of be settled in people's minds where they're at in these things. And then those who chose the right way, God will eventually reveal that they were right when that person goes and just is teaching all kinds of crazy, whacked out garbage. It's just the way it typically works with people. They never just have one little thing. It always turns into a bunch of other stuff. And so, verse 8 uh, says, But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So Micah is letting them know before he drops this big prophetic bomb on them that what he was saying was from God. I'm not like these other prophets that are just telling you what you want to hear. I'm not like these prophets that have confusion, who God has blinded them to these things. No, what I am telling you is directly from God. So fasten your seatbelts. You're not going to like what you're about to hear, but it's coming. And he says, Hear this, I pray you, O ye heads of the house of Jacob, and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity, they build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now, here's something that we might struggle relating with just a little bit in our American culture. But remember, Zion is where the temple was. That was where Solomon built that temple that was the focal point of Israel. It was the focal point of their religion. It was a big deal. That was Zion. And Zion, it had more than the temple. It had many things built up around it. In fact, go ahead and uh, turn over to Psalms chapter 48. We're going to look at one passage that illustrates this uh, very well. In fact, this particular prophecy was given, uh, or not prophecy, but this psalm was written, you know, during, around the same period where Micah is speaking, speaking before the destruction from the Babylonians came. But understand Israel as a nation was very proud of what they had built, of the physical buildings that were there. Remember even Jesus' disciples after uh, Matthew 23, when uh, they came and they're showing him all the buildings of the temple? They're like impressed with these things. They're talking with Jesus. Look at these impressive buildings. And Jesus said, there's not going to be one stone left upon another. He was letting them know that, hey, these buildings you're so proud of, they're going to go away. And so for them as a people and as a culture, these buildings and what they had accomplished building them was very special and very important to them. They were very proud of these things. And so imagine, you know, in, in our country today, you know, we have certain buildings, I guess you could say, that people are proud of. You know, we have, um, uh, what are we proud of in our country? I mean, you know, D.C. has got some pretty cool buildings. You know, you've got the Washington Monument. 
Everybody goes, see, we've got Mount Rushmore. But, you know, but imagine if somebody just went and like destroyed all of these American landmarks. People would throw a big fit about those things. And understand, as a nation, we don't take near the pride in those things. And we shouldn't. You know, we understand how buildings, it's not what it's all about. As, you know, because of the fact we have a more Christian heritage in our nation, we've always kind of understood the spiritual is more important than the physical. So we've not made as big of a deal. Also, those things have only been around for a short time, not even a couple hundred years. Where back then, it was about the temple. Back then, you know, these buildings had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so just seeing these things destroyed would be a far greater disaster in that world than us, you know, losing all of our national landmarks today. Some of us wouldn't mind seeing some stuff happen to DC, you know, but that, but so it's, it's hard for us to relate with this, but it would be just kind of like if you imagine how the Catholics would feel if the Vatican got leveled. Okay. Imagine how they would feel about that. Well, that's how they would feel and about the thought too of the prophecy of Jerusalem being leveled. They're not going to like that. That's not going to be a pleasant thought. And, and look what it says. I, I forgot to turn over there. In Psalms chapter 48. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of His holiness. This is referring to Mount Zion where the temple was. Beautiful for situation. And that phrase there for situation, that's actually a reference to the elevation of it because these buildings were built up very high. And if you, if you see where the temple uh, actually was, not on that platform where everybody believes it was, you know, back there, uh, according to Josephus and his, a lot of the historians, they built some extremely high towers there, which would be kind of impossible to do in the Temple Mount. They weren't able to build things that high back then, but they were kind of able to over there because it was done on the side of a hill. And so it, it enabled them to build greater and taller towers. And so they were proud of, you know, these structures and things that they had built. And it says, so beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. For lo, the kings were assembled. They passed by together. They saw it. And so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. They were intimidated by these buildings because it was very well fortified. It was very well protected. There's a reason too, during the Jewish Roman war, it took the Romans so long to just get to uh, where the temple was and to be able to defeat the Jews in there. I mean, they, they were very well fortified, very well surrounded by walls. They say there was like three walls that the Romans had to get through. And, and the, the real reason they even won that war is because the Jews went crazy during that time and kind of fought a civil war. You know, while, they've got, while they're surrounded by the Romans and we're like killing each other. It was, it was a horrible, horrible time. But it says, Fear took hold on them uh, there and pain as of a woman in travail. Thou breakest the ship of Tarshish uh, with an east wind. As we have heard, we have seen in the city of our Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Selah. We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple. According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion and go round about her. Tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces. 
that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever, and He will be our guide even unto death. So notice that very poetic passage there, just praising Mount Zion, praising the buildings, the temples, the towers, how well fortified it is, how intimidating it was to the enemy. They were very proud of what they had built. And when that psalm was written, this was long after the time of Solomon. We know Solomon built a ton there. And so this was a great landmark. And it was, it was the center of everything. In, in Jerusalem, in Israel, it was the most important thing. So verse 11, Micah is saying, I'm, what I'm telling you is from the Lord. This is going to come to pass. Verse 11, he says, The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. So we see, because they trusted in their towers and all the things that they built, you know what? God's like, I'm going to remove those things. God always did that in the Bible. Whenever He would see people trusting in something other than Him, you know what He would do? God would show them that that thing that they were trusting in was nothing. And that we see that pattern with the... Um, the uh, ten plagues in Egypt, those things were all direct attacks on Egyptian gods during that time. Remember when the army says, you know, we're going to fight, I, I always get it mixed up, but you said we're going to fight him on the hills and not the valleys because he's, a, you know, our God's the God of the hills and theirs is the God of the valleys, whatever. And God's like, because they said that, I'm going to, I'm going to go beat him on their turf. That's what God said. That's how God does things. And so you got Israel, they're looking at Zion. They're looking at this city that they've built and they're thinking, man, nobody can touch us. Look at what we've done. And so God's like, fine, I'll show you. These things that you trusted in um, that caused you to think no evil can come upon us, he says in verse 12, therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house of the high places of the forest. So notice what God said. That was, and that was the big prophecy. That right there is a key verse. This is a key part of this prophecy. And we're going to see that from some other passages we're going to look at. This was big. He's basically saying, everything you've built on Zion, it's going to be gone. It's going to go away. It's going to become a heap. It's going to become a den of dragons. It's going to be, he's basically saying, it's going to be forgotten. It will be forgotten what was even there. Is what he's, that, that's what he's saying. Now, uh, if, you, if you want to try to follow along with some of these, I'm going to go to a few different places. But this, this line was the main line of the prophecy that they would have hated hearing the most. And Michael was not the only one to prophesy this. And, and understand, it didn't happen in his day. And we're going to see because Hezekiah repented. But... We're going to see years later when another generation comes along that's bad, the prophets repeat this prophecy because it's still going to come. It's still going to come, just didn't come in their day. But in Jeremiah 51, 37, this is a prophecy about Babylon, but it says, And Babylon shall become heaps, a dwelling place for dragons, an astonishment, and a hissing without an inhabitant. So this is the same kind of prophecy. Whenever they talk about things becoming heaps and dens of dragons, it's just showing it's going to be destroyed and time is going to pass and it will be forgotten that anything was ever there. That's what that prophecy is. And if you go to Israel today, 
there are all kinds of heaps and dens of dragons or, you know, what we would call today lizards and things, things that just kind of dwell in the ground in the caves and in the rocks. And these, they call them tells today. There are tells all over Israel. What are these places? These are places that used to be thriving cities that were destroyed and over time were just completely covered with dirt and growth of things. And the only reason we even know much of anything was there is because somebody went and dug it up. You know, hundreds and even thousands of years after the fact, somebody went and dug it up. If you go to uh, Betshan over in Israel, you can tell. I mean, it's amazing the excavation they've done over there. That was all underground at one point. And you can tell from what they've dug up, that was a would have been a beautiful, thriving Roman city, um, you know, 2,000 years ago. I mean, it's impressive the things that they built there. Uh, there's a whole Colosseum. I mean, they've dug up whole Colosseums. It's like, how, how can you just bury uh, an entire Colosseum like that? But that's what would happen if something just got destroyed and just abandoned for hundreds of years. It, just over time, it's going to get covered up with dirt. Things are going to grow over it. And unless somebody goes and digs it up, you never know, really know anything was there. And there's, there's, a, there's streets over there that they've excavated, where it's these big fancy streets, they've got statues along the way. All this stuff was underground. And you can see where the ground levels are around it, and then they'll just, the road will just like abruptly end. And it's just like, and it looks like it's on the side of a hill, like the road went into the side of a hill. But the truth is, that was all open at one time. But just over hundreds and thousands, over a thousand years, it just got covered up with dirt and things. And, um, except if somebody hadn't dug it up, you'd never know that you were walking over a former thriving city. It really is an amazing thing. It's something that we don't have stuff like this in America. So we just don't, we don't really think about this kind of thing and appreciate this kind of thing. They built everything with stone back then. So it was stuff that was made to last for hundreds and thousands of years if necessary. And so God, when he would bring great judgment on places that were known for their beauty and stuff, you know, he would say things like that. They're going to be without an inhabitant. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be forgotten. And that's what happened with Babylon. I mean, there's still debate to this day about where some of these cities actually were that history talks about that were very beautiful, that were uh, are known as wonders of the world. It's debatable now because they were so thoroughly destroyed and so much time has passed, they've been forgotten. And God said that was going to happen with Jerusalem. God said that was going to happen. And so Jeremiah 9.11, Jeremiah is speaking. He says, and I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of dragons. And I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. So right there is a very specific uh, prophecy that's going to happen on Jerusalem. It's going to become heaps, dens of dragons. Chapter 26, this particular prophecy almost gets Jeremiah killed. He says in verse 16, Then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and the prophets, This man is not worthy to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Why are they saying this? Because some were wanting to kill Jeremiah for what he prophesied. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to the, all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Morashathite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? 
and the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them, thus might we procure great evil against our souls. And there, all, there was also a man that prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men, and the princes heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went into Egypt. And Jehoiakim the king sent men into Egypt, namely Elnathan the son of Akbor, and certain men with him into Egypt. And they fetched forth Uriah out of Egypt and brought him unto Jehoiakim the king, who slew him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So notice that Jeremiah prophesies the exact same thing as Micah, and they want to kill him. And thankfully, some men stand up. and They're like, no, that's not the way how we should respond to this prophecy, even though it's a bad prophecy. This is the same thing Micah prophesied, and this is the same thing someone named Uriah prophesied, and Jehoiakim had him killed for it. So you can see just how much Israel hated this prophecy. They really hated it. One, Micah fortunately didn't get killed, but Uriah did get killed, and Jeremiah almost got killed because of this prophecy. And so thankfully some decent people saved Jeremiah's life, but this generation, though, and we know this from other places in the book of Jeremiah, they were beyond the hope of repentance. The time for judgment had come. And in, a lot of, in, in Jeremiah's prophecy, you just don't really see any place for repentance in there. It's like, this is going to happen. In fact, he said, reprobate silver shall men call, call, call them, because the Lord hath rejected them. And he's referring to that generation too. It's like, they're not coming back. You know, there's sometimes in prophecies, God gave them a place for repentance. Sometimes he didn't. And that generation that Jeremiah was in, you know, he was telling them the truth when he said, this is coming and it's coming on your generation and nothing can change that. And thankfully, there were some decent people that just accepted it and like, let's not add to our sins by killing Jeremiah. And uh, they, they did the right thing. So, the, you know, so without a doubt, this prophecy of Zion being plowed like a field is a major prophecy. But the question is, when did it come to pass. When was this prophecy actually fulfilled? Because some might say, well, it would have been after the Babylonian destruction that came during that time when it, it was left in ruins. But the thing is, 70 years is not enough time for it to you know, become like the heaps and dens of dragons like it talked about. It's not time for it to be forgotten because there was a generation alive when the new foundation was being laid that remembered the old temple. And so in 70 years, it would be very easy for them to figure out what it was. The walls were all in ruins. Nehemiah went back to repair those things. But without a doubt, when they rebuilt the temple, it was in the right spot. They, they knew where it was. That prophecy had not fully come to pass. But uh, So I don't believe that it was fulfilled then. Some might say it was after 70 AD, after the Jewish-Roman War, when the temple was destroyed and there wasn't one stone left upon another. And the, truth, and the truth is, I do think that was a part of it because the temple was never rebuilt after that, even though there were some people who attempted to rebuild it, historically speaking. It was never rebuilt during that time. And still, 
that is going short of being plowed like a field. You know, and uh, but when I personally think you could say the real fulfillment of this took place, it was in 132 A.D. during the Bar Kokhba revolt because the Jews kept trying to rebuild the temple. They tried to rebuild the temple during Simon Bar Kokhba, who uh, they thought he was a Messiah, and many people thought he was the Messiah. And uh, during when he started his uprising, the Romans came through. And just another bloodbath. Not quite as bad as the 70 AD one, but really bad. Half a million Jews died during that time. And the Roman emperor during that time decided he wanted to remove the memory of the, of Jerusalem and of the temple of God. You know, he wanted to, he wanted to get rid of that memory. And he, they literally stripped everything down to the foundation and they literally plowed over Zion, according to history, they plowed over it just like Micah the prophet prophesied and he ended up building a temple to Jupiter there. And you know what? That area did become heaps. It did become dens of dragons. If you go to the spot where we believe that the temple was roughly and I, nobody knows the exact spot. You know what? You will, you will see if you go there and look, they have dug down several feet into the ground to find remnants of things. You know why? Because that area literally became heaps. It became basically like a garbage heap where, you know, the Romans just kind of threw all their trash and everything, got covered with dirt over time. They've removed just tons and tons and tons of rubbish. And it was forgotten that where the temple was, was forgotten in history. And it, and the only reason anybody even has a rough idea of where it was is because in the late 1800s, they've discovered the Gihon Springs that had been lost. And, you know, that was a pretty legitimate discovery. But, and it, it, they found it in this area that was just heaps of nothing, a wilderness, just like Micah prophesied. And you know why they did that? God did that. God said, I'm doing it for your sakes. Because you trusted in these things, because you made such a big deal about these buildings and things, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to remove it. And that is exactly what God did. And that, that prophecy was one that, I mean, it shook up Jerusalem. They did not want to hear it. It made people mad. And you know what? It still makes people mad today. If you bring that up today and you say, I don't see how that platform there on the, by the Dome of the Rock, that doesn't line up with the prophecies of Jesus about one stone, not one stone being left upon another. That doesn't line up with Micah's prophecies, with Jeremiah's prophecy. That isn't lining up. Your history that you're given for this area doesn't fit what God said was going to happen on His holy mountain, on Mount Zion. And they get offended by that. They get, they get very offended by that. And you know what? It's because nothing has changed with unbelieving Israel in 3,000 years. It's, just, it's always kind of been the same thing. And so that prophecy... It's a very important one in Micah, and it's one that's often ignored. And I think any time somebody's trying to make a big deal about the, you know, stuff over there in Jerusalem, we know this is a place, this is a place nobody really knows, ladies and gentlemen. God had those things removed and hidden for a reason, and it's because he, people were trusting in those things too much. And if we, if, if, if we did get confirmation about certain locations today, it wouldn't bring people closer to God. It would get them even more attached 
to buildings and locations and geography and things. And God doesn't want that. God wants people worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. And so, hopefully this that, uh, chapter is a help to you. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much uh, for Your promises we see in Your Word and the prophecies that we can look back on. And Lord, when I see uh, study these prophecies have been fulfilled, it just gives me more assurance of the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled that I can know that they're going to come and count on them. Lord, we just pray you'll bless the service coming up the next hour as we celebrate your resurrection. What exciting time of year this is. In your name we pray. Amen.